Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome into the OBR Film Breakdown. I'm your host, Jake Burns. We are back for another year of prospect interviews based on local beat writers and those who covered them closely. I've done this, like, I think this is the fourth year, maybe third. I don't know. I haven't gone back to look, but it's always a really fun exercise to uh, learn more about these guys, the Browns draft value and bring into their franchise from those who covered them, they can give them, you know, the, provide you with unique stories about their time covering the player, how they entered the program, how they grew within the program, and many other elements that you just can't get from watching film or reading secondhand write-ups. I, th- I think it's just super insightful stuff all the way around, and I've had a lot of positive feedback on this over the years. So it takes a lot of organizing. It takes a lot of getting a hold of different contact points, finding the right person to comment on the players, stuff like that. So it's not always perfect, and I can't always get them in that sort of linear fashion the way you'd hope. So I I try to get as many to you as I possibly can uh, within reason. And and sometimes the audio of them is a a bit hit or miss because I'll do one of them will need called. The next person can join some sort of online link where the audio is a little bit cleaner. So just... Uh, bear with me, moral of the story. I think so far we've gotten quite a few done. In this episode, we hit on Cedric Tillman, we hit on Siake Ika, and then we hit the Ohio State guys. We'll come back probably early next week for Isaiah McGuire, Cameron Mitchell, and then uh, some others that we got to hit on. Probably, hopefully, Lonnie Phelps and Mahmoud Diabate. I know we have his already, so uh, we shouldn't be too far off from getting everybody in Dorian Thompson-Robinson, too. But this is like your start of the draft. Obviously, kind of in a weird way, you go your first three picks, then Whipler and Ronnie Ronnie Hickman. But we wanted to hit on all the Ohio State guys together. So, uh, listen, this is a fun one. I think we get some great insights. And, again, I apologize that at certain points the audio is not perfect as we're trying to do the best to to reach these folks, which sometimes means reaching out, calling cell phones, and recording a call. So, uh, thanks for being cool about some of the audio stuff. But this one turned out pretty good today, so I hope you guys will enjoy it. Let's get over to the start of our 2023 draft introduction series, and that starts off with Tennessee's Cedric Tillman. All right, happy to have Adam Sparks in here from the uh, Knoxville News. So he is the beat writer for the Tennessee Volunteers football team. Quite a bit going on. Big year for the team. Obviously some disappointment there at the end, but nonetheless a lot of talent comes into the NFL the Browns take Cedric Tillman 74th overall. I would say, Adam, he was a little bit overshadowed by Jalen Hyatt's season, but but certainly somebody the NFL was was very interested in, more so than we thought. And it's kind of ironic they go back-to-back there, you know what I mean? 
had Shane Hyatt sort of supplanted uh, Cedric Tillman, uh, at least, you know, within the, the, the Tennessee environment. Um, Cedric Tillman was one of the best receivers in uh, in the country in college football uh, in 2021. Had a had an ankle injury. Um, was really looked at as maybe a Bolitnikov uh, front runner going into the 2022 season, and then Jalen Hyde ends up uh, sliding into his spot, sliding into his role in some extent, and winning the Bolitnikov. Um, but I always thought uh, I always thought Cedric Tillman would be a better pro than. And again, this is a guy who was, I think, one of the top five to ten wide receivers in 2021. He that year. So it didn't surprise me that they were that they were drafted close together. I think both of them will be pretty good pros. But uh, I, I, I always thought Cedric Tillman would probably translate better to the NFL level. Yeah, talk, talk about that a little bit. So he has a fantastic 21 season where he puts up over 1,000 yards and really 12 touchdowns, lights the world on fire at the end of the year. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's interesting what happens the next year, the ankle injury, right? Like, can you guide us through how he handled some of that stuff? Because it had to be hard on him, especially knowing he came back to improve what was a pretty high draft stock already. So, yeah, walk us through a little bit of how he navigated the frustrations of that year. Yeah, going into the 2022 season, he was sort of promoted as one of Tennessee's uh, two big stars. Hendon Hooker, the quarterback, obviously being the other one, he ended up being a, a Heisman candidate. Um, you know, even even in the uh, season, uh, Hooker and Tillman both on a on a sort of a branding uh, NIL funded trip up to to new york and Times square and they were kind of the, they were the two guys they were they were uh they were a duo and then tillman has a uh, high ankle sprain in really a meaningless game against akron uh leaves that game misses the next like four or five games uh he had he had mid-season surgery he had the option or, or i'm sorry uh put off surgery uh had a little bit of a cleanup uh but put off the the bigger surgery until later um could have could have really set out the rest of the season. I'm sure an agent probably would have told him that. Uh, just sit out the year, get 100% healthy, go into the draft. Instead, he he had a procedure that could just clean it up a little bit so that he could get back on the field sooner than later. Uh, begged the coaches to play in the Alabama game, even though he was probably about 60%. Uh, they didn't let him, uh, which was better, I think, for his long-term health. Um, and then he eventually got back late in the year, was never 100%. And, again, he was coming back because this was a team that had a, had a shot at a national championship, and he wanted to be part of that. He, he even said uh, after the season that his favorite moment as a Tennessee volunteer was the Alabama game uh, because they, had, they upset Alabama, fans stormed the field, ripped down the goalpost, all that, and – he enjoyed that moment despite being injured and on the sideline. I think that does tell you sort of the the team-oriented guy that Cedric Tillman is. He, he really, really cares that much about winning, uh, that he enjoyed that that much despite not playing. Um, he, I always thought he was a better pro than a college player because his his body, his style of play, I think just translates so well. To, to the NFL game. Uh, he, he runs in the four fives, so he's not a blazing speed. I think he's got deceptive speed, but um, he lit up Georgia and Alabama in 2021 
despite not having that breakaway speed. He, he, he understands how to use his body, how to position his body uh, to, to high point balls, um, to, to pull down deep balls. He has no trouble catching the ball in traffic. Um, he, he's, as, he's as good with competitive contested catches as he is wide open catches. It's just a, 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 you know, a physically strong guy. Gets off press man coverage really well. Um, has has great hands that will catch the ball with contact, and so just a lot of those things that you look for in an NFL wide receiver. Uh, he he he's got that. Uh, AJ Brown that uh, now is in Philly was at uh, was just down the road from here, played for the Titans obviously for a couple of years. Has, has some of the same qualities I think as Cedric Tillman. Just a guy that if you throw it to him, he's going to catch it. Doesn't matter if a guy's hanging off of him, and I think that's something. That just fits so well into the NFL game. I'm going to backtrack us a little bit. He he was not a very lauded recruit, just a three star recruit. And uh, Dane Brugler initially wrote in his write up of him that he was a late Tennessee signee. Is that is that true? Was kind of tipped off between the Helton brothers. Yeah, he um, yeah Cedric was he he was he was an okay SEC prospect. Uh, not a guy that I think when he came in they saw as uh, they saw it as, as a developmental wide receivers. I mean, when you when you bring guys in, obviously at the college level, you've got the high four star, five star guys, which are the skill players that are just going to hit immediately. Um, and then you've got the the, the more three star level, which are developmental guys. You're not going to see them on the field at least for a couple three years. That's more of what he was. Um, tall, lanky, sort of grew into his body, um, and that's you know it's a lot of times what you see with guys with that frame, but I think sort of his competitive nature uh, is what pushed him, uh, you know, beyond where he was before. And it doesn't hurt that he was, he was playing in Josh Hopple's offense. This is the, uh, is the number one offense in the country last year is one of the top two or three in the country. Uh, Tillman's really big year in 2021 had a Heisman trophy candidate quarterback. It's a, it's a receiver friendly offense. But but again, I'll go back to the difference between Hyatt and Tillman. Hyatt is a guy that was in the slot and would get a free release and took advantage of his speed and 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 you know would would beat people deep. Cedric Tillman was a guy that was having to get off press man coverage against you know NFL caliber DBs against Georgia and Alabama and a lot of SEC corners getting off of that and catching contested balls in traffic. And I, I, I think that's more of what you'll see from him in the NFL. Yeah, certainly a unique offense that was tough to cover, and he fit in really well with it, especially considering how high, high it came along too. So I, 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 real quick as we close, just want to know, like, you covered him, you interviewed him, you talked to him. Is he a leadership type, or is he kind of a quiet, behind-the-scenes worker? I'm just kind of curious what Browns fans are getting as a person when they when they see Cedric Tillman. A high quality leadership type guy. Um, he will, his demeanor, um, if you talk to him in person, he's not going to seem like a, a rookie. He's going to seem like a 30 year old man uh, because that's, that's what he seemed like here. I mean, uh, I'll even go back to, to Jalen Hyde during his run to the Bolitnikoff. He referred to Cedric Tillman as the leader of the wide receiver room, as the, as the leader of the pack, as the alpha in the room. And again, that's the best college. That's the best wide receiver in college football last year, identifying a teammate as as the alpha at his uh, at his position. That's sort of the respect that Cedric Tillman gets. It, just a a guy that seems like he's been around for a long time. I think in the locker room, 
he'll fit in pretty quickly. I don't think he'll be a doe-eyed uh, rookie. I think I think he'll be a guy because of his demeanor, uh, because of his maturity, but then also his physical build. Uh, I think will make him look more like an NFL receiver sooner than later. That's fantastic stuff. He's Adam Sparks. He covers the Tennessee Volunteer Football Program for Knoxville News. He's 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 a fantastic follow too. If you care about the myriad of pro prospects they have coming out of that university these days, so Adam, we uh, you know, up here in Cleveland are very grateful for your insights on Cedric. We're excited to have him. All right, good to be on. Big thanks to Adam for coming by and sharing his insights on Cedric Tillman. It does appear that the trend of anybody who talks to anybody in the Tennessee football program or who covered it have nothing but ridiculously good things to say about Cedric and certainly about how he was perceived coming out of his junior year going into his senior year. So that stuff carries on. The stories are great. And like I said, I've just a bunch of different Tennessee connected folks have said a lot of similar things. So that's good to hear. Next, we're going to get over to an interview uh, a little interesting here where this one ties into the scheme as well as the player with uh, with Siaki Ika, or Apu as he goes by uh, the nickname. So this is a great interview. Let's get over to it right now. Happy to be joined by Travis Roeder, guys. He's at Travis underscore Roeder. He writes for Sikkim 365, all about Baylor football all the time. So when I was looking up somebody to try to have a conversation about Apu Ika, it was, it was built toward, in my opinion, coming up with a way to talk about what he did in college and what he'll do with the Browns. And I think we get the whole deal here with Travis. So we're pumped to have you, man. Thanks for joining. Yeah, glad to have you. Uh, glad to be on. Excuse me. Um, Apu's a he's a fun player. He's a unique player. So uh, happy to provide some insight into his game. Yeah, let's let's do this. So we'll backtrack it a little bit. He he obviously goes to LSU. Maybe people around him in his early years thought he was going to end up at the either Utah uh, BYU area. Goes to LSU. Seems like things he's either not comfortable there or whatever, and maybe you know more about, Travis, why he left, and I think he like entered the transfer portal in October of that sophomore year. You can maybe enlighten us of, of what happened, why it fell up, uh, apart there at LSU, and what brought him or drew him to Baylor. Yeah, I'm going off memory here. I haven't, I haven't thought about his time at LSU in quite some time, but um, if I recall correctly, basically, he came there, played under Aranda, um, as his, as a freshman, and he was playing as kind of a recruited towards that Aranda style three four, where he's playing as the zero nose. And then um, the following year after Aranda left, it kind of became Ed Orgeron's defense, and they were playing a lot more four three. He was playing a lot more, you know, one tech three tech, and uh, he didn't think that that was kind of his best pa- best path forward, or maybe he didn't like the new coaching staff, what have you. I do remember at the time it was kind of a big talking point that he wanted to get back into playing as that true zero nose. Um, so I might have my timeline off a little bit there. I, I can't remember if he played under Aranda that first year, but I, I do remember the general thrust of the story was that he was recruited towards that three four to play as the zero nose as the big war daddy up in the middle. Um, you know, was was being asked to do a little bit more four three, get up the field, one gap type stuff under Orgeron. He didn't think that was his best future, and so he ended up transferring out. Well, it makes plenty of sense why he would be drawn to Baylor then. So he comes to Baylor. Was was there any other serious competition for him, or did he feel pretty much like Baylor right away and that was the best fit for him? Yeah, it was, a again, as you mentioned, he was in the portal for a while. And um, so, you know, as to what his other offers were, I can't remember that off the top of my head. He was somebody that I know had offers from, you know, you know, Southern Cal, USC's, all, all the big schools, because he was such a massive recruit 
and his his true freshman tape at LSU was very good. And so everyone knew he was a player. And so I think he was really just looking for the best fit to kind of prepare him for the NFL. Uh, felt comfortable with his relationship at Aranda, how he'd be used in the defense. And so that's how he ended up at Baylor. So let's talk about how it goes at Baylor. He comes in, I think, what he had that great junior year where he won, I think he won Newcomer of the Year, and it was a first team. Yep. You know, or at least second team all conference guy. So four and a half sacks, six and a half tackles. We'll talk about 22. I guess we can compare him to here. So I, what I find interesting, Travis, is he's a really productive on paper statistically guy his junior year. A lot of the stuff adds up, right? right. Uh, deep newcomer of the year, second team, he's productive. It doesn't seem from the outside looking in, everything sort of falls off his senior year just this last year. Only two tackles for loss, no sacks. But yet he goes from second team to first team. Was there just... Like, is there circumstances or I haven't consumed his tape yet. So I'm asking you to kind of get out in front of this. Is it circumstantial stuff? He was around the football, just couldn't get home to make those plays. Maybe, you know, cause those things are sort of finicky. They can, things can happen right before a tackle for loss happens. That changes the outcome. A quarterback throws it away, but you still create the pressure. It, it to me, what stands out is two things. Despite the lack of production compared to the junior year, he was a first team, all big 12 guy. So the media and coaches had to respect him on some level. And then he was also a team captain, which also speaks highly of any guy transferring into a new program. So if you could enlighten us on a couple of those things in terms of what was he like around his team was obviously he's well-respected. So was it uh, just, did he draw the respect to players through outwardly speaking? Was he an example type of guy? And then was it just the, the lack of production his senior year tied to circumstantial stuff or was there something that happened there? Yeah, there's a lot there. So I'll start with kind of who Apu is as a, as a person. He's very, uh, he's a character. Um, he's not necessarily, you know, a loud guy or really boisterous or anything like that. Uh, but he is, uh, he kind of carries a lot of that charisma that is immediately noticeable. I think the first time y'all see any sort of interview with him or anything like that, he's a soft spoken guy, but there's still some charisma to him. Um, I know that, you know, I can kind of recall off the top of my head that Aranda has mentioned over the past couple of years since he's been, that since he's been here, that they've been looking for some more maturity from him and some more leadership style aspects from him. I, I don't think that necessarily speaks ill of Apu. I think a lot of that was just because, uh, and this gets into the weeds uh, as far as Browns fans, doesn't really matter too much, but specific to Baylor football, they were really kind of bereft of leaders, uh, had a kind of a leadership crisis this last year, which is why they went from a sugar bowl champion team to, a, you know, a six and seven team this last year. And so I think a lot of that was Aranda trying to kind of put that on Apu's shoulders and, I don't think he's ever going to be a kind of a, a lead from the front, everyone follow me type of leader. He's more just kind of that physical freak that's fun to be around that I think kind of like a lot of the big defensive linemen, he's going to he's going to do his own thing but isn't necessarily going to be, you know, the you know, the team spokesperson. Uh, but he's still really I think he's a good, you know, a good kid, a good young man. Uh, everything I've been around him, he's he's uh he's fun to be around. I don't think he's a bad person by any means. I but I do think, you know, He's not exactly the, you know, as I said, I don't think he's ever going to be a team spokesperson type, a type of leader. As far as the production goes, I think the main story really was just that Baylor's defense was so much better his junior year than the senior year, and it basically just has to do with everyone around him. Uh, Jalen Petrie was the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, got drafted in the second round and had a great rookie season for the Texans at safety. Uh, he was an all-world type player in Apu's junior year. They also had Terrell Bernard, who was drafted in the third round by the Bills. Um, and he was an inside linebacker playing behind Apu. And so I think Apu just had a lot more help. And basically, his senior year, teams knew that he was really the focal point of the Baylor defense. He was getting doubled every play. 
uh, still making a lot of plays, but uh, I think that's basically the, the short of it. There's kind of some you know, more scheme stuff and things like that, but the short of it basically is that Baylor had a much a lot better talent around him his junior year, which allowed him to make plays. But I think he was just as good of a player his senior year, if not you know a little bit better in some of the technique aspects. That's fantastic insight. You know, what, what draws me to him is you talk about the zero no stuff. So I think when you look at him from a couple different angles, you the Browns fans are a bit hesitant at first. Now I don't I wouldn't expect you to know this, but they have a deep background of a first round pick they took back in twenty 15, 16, I don't know. I lose track of the years. Danny Shelton was his name. Okay. Now, obviously there's lazy cultural comparisons there, but they are similar body types and similar types of athletes. When you look at the relative athletic score, what I'm interested in is one thing. Why would you think a guy like uh, Ika, who is shorter armed, bigger body guy would test almost everything outside of bench? Is there a concern? Should there be a concern from Browns fans that he's not strong enough? Like that just to me is like DK Metcalf not running the 40. That's the bread and butter of powerful defensive tackles. I don't care what they run the 40 in. I don't care what their short shuttle is. I do care how much power they have through their upper torso to sort of anchor those double teams and whatnot. So is there from your time around him, is he plenty strong enough to handle that stuff? There shouldn't be any concern. And maybe you can enlighten us on why he would feel inclined to not do the bench press. Yeah, I didn't even know that. Um, you know, <laughs> so that's kind of funny to hear that. I I would not be worried about strength uh, with Apu Ika. Um, he is full on. You know, there is plenty of tape of him in college of him just absolutely destroying uh, offensive linemen in front of him and guys who are playing in the league now. So strength is not a concern for me when it comes to his play at all. Um, why he didn't do it. I'm not sure. Uh, he has short arms, as you mentioned, really short arms, which I think is part of why he fell to the third round. Um, so he should have been good at the bench press. So I'm not sure why he didn't do that. Um, but yeah, no power is not a concern for him at all. Yeah. In the, in the pre-draft stuff, or, or actually when they drafted him, there's a little bit of a short video where Jim Schwartz talks about Brown's new defensive coordinator talks about him going from a dump truck to a Ferrari, which obviously illustrates that he was a two gap guy for Aranda. He's going to be more of a single gap, gap and a half guy in Schwartz defense. You had mentioned just a minute ago that there was a little bit if he wanted to be that zero technique. And I think the Browns are going to play a lot of underfront stuff. So they're going to have him more as a zero, more of a shade to sometimes in some of their yeah. wide pass rush front wide nine stuff, maybe even perhaps bump him out to a one or two eye. So is there concern from your side over whether he can do that? Or do you think he'll be able to handle that with enough speed? And because they're not asking him to anchor doubles. I mean, you're going to get natural double teams. It's just, it's an organic thing. You can only do so much, but it seems like they're asking him to shoot gaps a little bit more. And you think he has that ability? I think that's his ideal fit in the NFL. Apu's always been a guy where he's a, uh, he's a, a four, three under tackle and a three, four noses body. Uh, he, he likes to get up field. His best attribute actually is really his 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 good hand usage, and he has actually really quick feet for a guy his size. He really likes to get upfield. Uh, I think if you were going to watch one game to kind of understand how he plays, I would watch that Sugar Bowl from a couple of years ago when Baylor played Ole Miss because um, there's plenty of examples of him anchoring down as a double, um, but also, you know, a lot of times these O-line coaches are going to ask, you know, these really good NFL offensive linemen, let's say, you know, you're, you're a guard and you've got, um, you know, you're trying to get to the play side. And so you're trying to reach the one technique who's more on the outside shoulder of your center. And the guard is being basically asked to kind of cover a, a, a gap over and get in front of that defensive tackle. Apu's the ideal guy to where 
he looks big and fat on tape and you think he's slow, but he's actually really quick and he gets up field quickly. I think him being a zero nose in college was more kind of him trying to lean into his body type for a college athlete, which is much bigger than everyone else. And he was always able to handle double teams pretty well just because he was so big. But his technique on doubles was actually never very good. Um, he would get washed by some much inferior linemen from time to time just because his technique wasn't good. And I think a lot of it had to do with his short arms. You know, um, when you're holding up against double teams, a lot of times you're literally having one arm, you know, on one guy and another arm on another guy. And you're trying to anchor down and hold your hold your grasp. And he had trouble with that. So I think he's kind of ideal for getting upfield. I actually remember when I was reviewing his LSU tape, uh, one of the first things I always do for a transfer is look at their pro football focus numbers. And what immediately jumped out to me was that his pass rush grade was much better than his run stopping grade. Um, and that bore out on tape. He was never an elite sack guy because when you're 370 pounds or whatever he is, he got pretty tired by the end of the games. And in college, he was such a good player that he was always being asked to play more than 40, 50, 60 snaps a game. So that's not ideal for him. So he would always tire out and never get good rush numbers because of that. But I think in the NFL, you play him, you know, 15 to 30 snaps a game. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if he's his pass rush numbers get a lot better in the NFL uh, and his TFLs get better on a per play basis because he's playing fresh and he has those quick feet. He really is kind of like a little ballerina in a 380-pound body or however much he actually weighs. So I think it's an ideal fit for him because, I actually, as I mentioned, I think he's actually going to struggle with double teams. He's, he's so big, but he has really short arms. So he, good hand usage, quick feet, short arms, those are attributes that you think of as a guy who makes plays in the backfield. It's just that he happens to be 370 pounds. I think they'd probably like him to lose some weight. Uh, I think a lot of people have been trying to get him to lose weight, so it'll be interesting to see whether the Browns can get him to get down to 330, 340. Um, but I do, I really do like the fit. It's kind of what I expected from him, especially after I learned how short his arms were. This is fantastic stuff about the scheme, and especially him. You know what's best for him based on what you think he is as a player. You enlightened really well there about the zero one stuff trapped in a nose guard's body uh, is is pretty pretty enlightening. So. Uh, I, I'm hoping you can still hear me, Travis, but I'm going to try to close with this one. You you said something about his weight, um, and I want to ask you if you have any background on this. He went to the combine at 335 pounds, which was down, and then he came to his pro day. And I'm not sure you would know when Baylor's pro day was. I'm not necessarily certain of that, but he ended up showing up at the pro day to 347. So that's a 12-pound number maybe in a month's time going upward is there a concern about the weight for him that 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 it would it would creep too high or uh, impact his ability to stay on the NFL field yeah I think it's more of a concern for the NFL I think you know whether he was at tip-top shape in college didn't matter as much um, but obviously I think for him I, I have no bone you know no doubt that Apu's going to be a really useful NFL player for the first three four or five years of his career but obviously, kind of once you start getting up in there into your upper 20s, early 30s, your body's got to be right. And uh, he's no longer going to be the biggest boy on the bus. And so I do think that kind of him being able to keep his weight at an ideal spot uh, is going to be really important for his NFL future. Listen, insights unparalleled from anybody covering Baylor, Travis. We appreciate you and your, uh, your time here a ton, man. I have to say in about four years of doing these, that's one of the more enlightening prospect reviews uh, i've heard from somebody who you know obviously you know i tilt toward breaking down film on top of all the other stuff so for him to give us a lot of the insights into what they did under a random why he got there and uh, 
all of that. That was really great from Travis, especially the player insights of the person too. So well worth a follow on Twitter uh, for just football content, but also a lot of what Baylor does down there, which is some pretty unique stuff defensively and offensively. Last but certainly not least, the Ohio State guys. We're going to talk about Dewan Jones, Luke Whipler, and then Ronnie Hickman as well. We have Bill Landis on. This is a really, really long portion, but a really good one because we're talking about three guys. So good amount of insights and then a little Buckeye banter at the end wrapping up this podcast. So let's get over that interview right now. So the Browns decided to actually activate the uh, the connection between Central Ohio and Northeast Ohio for the first time. And I think, I'm not sure, Bill, if the number was, uh, you know, four Ohio State players the Browns have drafted in the last, since the expansion return. It's pretty crazy, but we're going to welcome him, Bill Anderson, who's OhioState.Rivals.com. He does fantastic coverage of them beat writing both you know does football and obviously that's what we're here for but he does basketball as well as a great follow for everything ohio state athletics so uh bill first of all welcome in man yeah appreciate you having me on it is funny uh i every year i think to myself like oh i wonder what the browns are going to do with ohio state in their backyard and then the answer usually is nothing uh this year this year's a little different so it's cool to see yeah they've gone down there a couple times you know the the denzel ward connection is obviously pretty prominent but not enough we talk about the eagles have decided to just make georgia their uh triple a <laughs> program it would be wise for the browns to start activating a little bit more of that sort of columbus clippers angle for ohio state so that'd be great they do that this year they go Dewan jones pick 111 and that's the first guy we'll talk about of the three that ended up coming here through the draft and udfa angle and Dewan is an interesting guy. I think I, I can't even begin to tell the story. Maybe you can backtrack it, his basketball days, the recruiting and how it all worked out if you can. Yeah. So I was trying to refresh my memory on that uh, before we did this. And in it's actually, uh, this is more of an Ohio state thing than it is a, a Browns thing, but Ohio state for, for a while and kind of still dealing with this. Um, it's often found itself in a position where it sort of needs to cycle back late in recruiting cycles to find offensive linemen in particular. And uh, that happened in 2019. I think if I'm remembering correctly, the the big fish that year for them was Darnell Wright, um, who went to Tennessee and ended up being, I think he was a top 10 pick in this draft uh, as a right tackle. They, they didn't get him and never really felt like they were going to, um, but they sort of had a narrow focus on him. And then when it became apparent they weren't going to get him, uh, they kind of pivoted a little bit, and, and one of those guys they pivoted to was Dewan Jones. Um, I don't believe they offered him until, I want to say, late fall. It may have been November of his senior year of high school. Um, he was a very much under the radar. Uh, if you can imagine a guy who's as big as Dewan being under the radar, he, he was. Um ranked in like the thousands as, as a recruit, a very low three-star prospect. And, and frankly, like more of a basketball player than he was a football player. And that's something that Carrie like in, carried into his Ohio state career. We can talk more about that in, in a second, I guess, but um, Ohio state offered him a bunch of programs did uh, USC was in there. Penn state was in there. I think maybe like Auburn and Michigan might've, might've come sniffing around late. Like all of a sudden he was, he was the hot commodity because teams were trying to add a tackle late in that 2019 recruiting class and, and Ohio state, in what was Ryan Day's first recruiting class as head coach um, with some assistance from the former offensive line coach, Greg Studrawa, uh, went over to Indianapolis, uh, Ben Davis High School, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, sealed a deal with the wand. And we were all like, who, who is this six foot nine, 300 and I don't know, almost 400 pound monster that you guys are bringing into the program? We were all, we were all very intrigued by that because uh, for even at a program like Ohio State that, that brings in really good football players, um, not many of them, in fact, none of them uh, in my time covering a team qu quite match up to Dewan's physical stature. So he was a bit of a marvel from the time that he signed with Ohio State. 
Yeah, which begets the question to me of how a guy that big and as athletically gifted as he clearly is to play early and all that. I mean, I guess my question is I don't follow Ohio State recruiting that closely. I do it from afar because I've grown up around it and I'm in central Ohio. And what else are you going to do? And I don't remember hearing much about him. Did he have to like you talked about him coming in six, nine, four hundred and. Obviously, there's the the basketball, you know, sort of air quote mixtapes that are out there of him playing and he could play. It's just like, I, I guess, was it in in high school? He's being told, hey, man, you're not really a basketball body. You should play football. And he did. And he just didn't love it. So he didn't do the like camp cycles that make you more well known. I'm trying to figure out how this guy flies under the radar first and then comes in and then has the relatively early success that he does. And, like, was there a body transformation that happened early in his Ohio State days? Yeah, there there was. Um, he was always – I mean, he's always on the bigger side. I mean, you see him now. Like, he's – if if he came in – I think there were definitely points where he was, like, close to 400 pounds. Um, and and maybe, maybe he was even close to that during this draft process. But um, when he got to Ohio State – and it took a couple of years, I think, for him to really take it seriously – he got down to like the 360 range, maybe 370 range, um, carried it really well. Um, like, uh, you know, 370 on, on a lot of people looks very different than it does than it looks on on Dewan Jones. And and that helped him become the the better player, like all Big Ten caliber player that he was later in his Ohio State career. But I think in, in high school, he was he was a basketball player. Like he didn't he didn't view himself as a football player. Um I think there were questions about like that that football passion, right? I think NFL teams had that question about him during this process, and I think the college programs, once they sort of caught wind of him, were asking the same thing: like, does this guy really want to be a football player? And I don't, I don't know that Dewan really decided he wanted to be a football player until he decided to come back for this past season at Ohio State and realize maybe what, what could have been out there for him if he truly dedicated himself to that. I think somewhere in the back of his mind, even up until that point, he considered himself a basketball player, even though he was a Division One football player at the time. And he had the skills. He, he could have played D1 basketball, probably not at the level that he played football, but he could have been like a Mac basketball player, I think, or, or a, a, a low uh, lower major basketball player for, for sure at that size and, and with his movement skill. But um, there were there was a... A, a shift in his brain that I think needed to happen for him to realize that if he wanted to make money as a professional athlete, it was going to come as a football player. It was never going to come as a basketball player, or at least like real life changing money. It was never going to come as a basketball player. And I think that, that did finally click for him, but it took a while. That's actually pretty interesting to say that he was starting meaningful games for Ohio State. Uh, you know, he, he played what as a, as a sophomore junior. I know he started a full year before this last year. So yeah. like, there's belief in the program that he was still not all the way in as a, t and I'm not trying to create something crazy here. I think guys have aspirations and dreams and it's not, it's not wild to think guys who are playing either sport, you know, whatever could be do guys play baseball and then go play football and they figure it out late. It's just interesting that he was playing as well as he was, even when he was like one foot into man, maybe I should still be playing basketball. That's kind of wild. I think maybe the, the, the best illustration of what Ohio State thought of DeWand is in his in his sophomore, or I guess it would have been his first year starting, which was the the twenty twenty one season. Um, they moved two tackles, Thayer Munford and Paris Johnson, to guard 
so that Dewan could play tackle. And we, all of us were thinking to ourselves, like, what are you like? Paris was a five star number one tackle in the country coming out of high school. We all thought that he was a, a shoe in to be the starter at one of the tackle positions that year. And and Thayer was a returning, uh, I believe, three year starter at that point at left tackle. And they also had Nicholas Petit Frere. And I guess they, they just didn't think that Nick or Dewan could play guard but they needed to get the wand on the field or felt they needed to get the wand on the field. So their solution to do that was to move Thayer Munford and Paris Johnson to tackle or to guard, excuse me, two guys who are playing tackle in the NFL right now. And Paris was just the number six pick in the draft. So they saw a ton of upside with the wand, e- even if the didn't see it in himself or was um, terribly dedicated, I think to making himself that kind of player at that time, they saw the raw talent and, and probably somewhere in the back of their mind, too, they thought if we give him this shot, he'll realize what's there for him and he'll try to maximize it. And I think that did happen a little bit. But um, even without showing much like the his first year, he played a, a little bit. Um, he didn't really play much in 2020. Um, that was a weird year. But um, yeah. the uh, the fact that they were they saw so much in him to, to make these drastic shifts along the offensive line and frankly, play players out of position and in hindsight, probably to their detriment. Um I think spoke a lot about what they saw in DeWand and it, and it took maybe another year for, for DeWand himself to kind of catch up to that vision. That's crazy. It's good, good insight there. So obviously he gets done. He has a great year. Not, not only a great year, does he not, it's well traveled. Now the statistic, he didn't give up a sack. He only gave up five pressures, which is borderline crazy. There is a, it does look like there's a little bit with some penalties here, 16 over the last two years. So mm-hmm. we'll try to track that a little bit, but there's no ta- there's no doubt the guy is talented. He had a good initial showing at the Senior Bowl. So I guess my question would be, as we look at why he falls to 111. To me, it's very easy to if he's in the pre-draft process, easy to explain away. Hey, I thought I loved basketball. I've started to morph my mind into understanding football. You know, this is the avenue I should travel. I'm really good at it. I think it's. I guess what I'm asking you, Bill, is to for you to give us some sort of guess about why the young man would be there at 111 because there's a, there's so much talent here and there's rare size speed com- and truly mm-hmm. rare size speed combination stuff going on here. Do you think it's like he maybe doesn't explain it the way he needs to to make like franchises comfortable with him? I'm just it just like to me the the rationale for it is very simple and 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 now you know that that leaves the question there of I and I guess I'm asking you to use a lot of conjecture here which isn't always great but like the why do you think he's there at 111? I mean, it surprised me too, but but I think if you because I thought I thought maybe second round at worst third round for him when he when he fell over the day three I was I was pretty shocked by that. But if you sort of look back, if you look back at the process leading up to the draft, and maybe I think kept in mind those questions with the one that went all the way back to his high school recruiting, which are like, does this guy really want this? He has all the talent in the world. Does he really want it? Um, and then to see him like kind of pack it in after one good day at the senior bowl. I know he did the combine, but then he didn't do anything at Ohio state's pro day. Um, I thought he just kind of sat on his laurels a little too much. And um, I I was curious how that might impact him as we got closer and closer to the draft. I I just, something in the back of my mind was like, I don't, I don't know that the wand did enough Um, because he's an incredible athlete. He certainly looks the part, but he is also an anomaly physically in the NFL. Like there aren't a lot of guys at, his size doing this and that invites natural questions questions that i think you can kind of put to bed if you just like continuously stack good workouts on good workouts on good workouts and have i'm I'm assuming he interviewed fairly well like he's a pretty gregarious guy like he's 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 kind of fun to be around um 
but I think it's it's the tape more than anything and, and the the dedication to football that I think matters the most um, in, in those kind of settings. And, and I think you can question it a little bit with the wand. Um, my my hope for him is that is that seeing what kind of impact that had on him in the draft maybe might crystallize for him like, OK, I need to I need to ramp this up a little bit like I the Browns drafted me in the fourth round despite all of this because they think long term I can be a starter in the NFL can he then channel that into doing the things that he needs to do on a daily basis to make sure his body's right, to make sure he's, he's, you know, watching the film, he's learning the offense, he's studying defensive players, like everything. It's a, it's a, it's a full-time job, right? Like, I don't, I don't know how, how many guys realize that it's, it's a 365 day a year job. It's not just 17 weeks, 18 weeks during the fall that you have to do this. And, um, I, I think you can get by when you're as athletic as DeWand is in college by not being, um, 100% dedicated to the craft in that way, but I don't think you can in, in pro football. And my hope for him is that that maybe that realization is is starting to land for him now that he fell much much farther than he thought he would go. Yeah, the money arriving in your bank account has a has a weird way of changing the attitude of some guys. So I think they're hoping that the uh, the element there flips into it. And again, again, some of this is for him. You know, you talk to coaches. If, if if we're saying this from the outside, coaches are certainly having conversations around this and. Dewan is left to just sell himself and there's certainly teams that are telling themselves we see the talent but there's always that inherent risk of a guy who maybe is uh you're just being told is going to love the sport the way he needs to and there's doubt that creeps into the mind at that point and and uh you know you, you're making a great point of guys rarely play six eight six nine four hundred pounds and it's managing the weight and all of that stuff and there's dedication that comes with that right so mm-hmm. um a lot of stuff there but we we'll hope it works out great insight uh on Dewan there so let's switch to uh luke whipler so uh, luke's story is a little interesting right he took over unexpectedly in the, at the start of 21 right i i think that i think that that was relatively unexpected but maybe you can backtrack a little of his recruiting and stuff like that for us yeah no that that was unexpected so um he was a true freshman that year and no is that right no i guess not i guess it was the second year um but we they opened the season at minnesota on a thursday night and if i if i'm remembering this correctly like we all we all traveled to minnesota with the belief that harry miller who was a former five-star prospect had started at guard the previous year was going to be the starting center for Ohio State in the 2021 season. And then I, I think it's right that we got to Minneapolis and we get the availability report for that game. It's like Harry's not playing today. And Harry had dealt with some injuries that year and then eventually retired from football for mental health reasons, which helped make Luke the full-time starter at center for two years. But uh, we were just like, oh, you're going to start a, a Big Ten game on the road on a Thursday night with a true freshman center and a brand-new quarterback? Good luck with that. Because that was C.J. Stroud's first start, too, for Ohio yeah. State. Um, but I – Biggest compliment I think that I could give Luke is that it didn't seem to face him like at all. Um, it was a pretty clean game for him, um, and he was that that carried out th- throughout his career too. Um, just kind of a, a of a steady guy. We we figured like, he was a high higher end four star recruit that they got in the class of twenty twenty. Like it was a big deal when they got him out of New Jersey. Um, if he wasn't the best center in his class, he was he was up there um, as, as far as high school prospects go. So we all figured that eventually he would be the starting center. Um, and but none of us, I don't think, thought it would be in the opener on the road against Minnesota in in twenty twenty one as a as a redshirt freshman, basically. Um, but I think that speaks to um, Luke's like preparedness. Like it's 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 uh, 
it's funny to compare like Dewan, Dewan like sort of waffled back and forth. Like, am I a football player? What am I going to do? Like Luke was, seemed, always seemed pretty clear cut. Like this is what I am. Like I, this is what I do. I play football and it's all I care about. And I think that approach to things is what helped him um, maybe overcome some of his physical limitations and, and kind of step in and be a, a fairly productive player for Ohio State from day one. Yeah, was he as well versed in the leadership aspect? I know younger player, but it seems like he demanded respect early and and uh, as a guy that was uh, you know, at least his teammates were really well respected and was able to handle a lot of the cerebral parts of the game. Yeah, he's a sharp kid um, and he he carried a confidence. Uh, there was a confidence about him that I that I think suited him well for that position in particular. And it got to the point. I can't remember if this was the case in 2021, but it was definitely the case in 2022, like before every game when the team gathered at midfield, like for their last sort of like pump up speech before they um, finished off workouts and then went back out the tunnel before they, they came out onto the field right before the game, the guy that the team uh, rallied around every time was Luke Whipler. And and that might've happened in 2021. I, I, I don't want to say that it definitely did, but it was for sure the case in every single game in 2022. Like he was, he was the hype man uh, for, for that team uh, in a lot of instances. And, um, I think a really kind of important leader in their offensive line room, uh, their offensive line room did not have like a ton of alpha personalities. Um, there were a lot of guys that I think maybe were a little, a little more comfortable, perhaps like good players, but more comfortable being followers than they were leaders. Um, but Paris Johnson and Luke Whipler, I think were the two that were like, okay, like this is our room. We're going to lead it forward. And and Luke carried that role for basically two full seasons. He is interesting, right? He he's you talked about some of the physical limitations. I think that obviously being a center only, uh, the shorter body types kind of a little bit sawed off. I think is the right way to say it that yeah. causes him to slide to the sixth round. But I, I don't think there's any doubt he can have a productive NFL career as a center selected in the sixth, largely because he's a smart guy and he understands leverage and some of that stuff. And the Browns will try to get him to be a little bit more physically stronger to handle some of the bull rush stuff. You'll you'll see, but. What I wanted to ask you about with him, was it a surprise he left when he did, or did, was there a feeling he was coming back for another year? It was a pretty big surprise. Um, okay. Ryan Ryan Day, I asked Ryan Day that in a in a press conference shortly after that that announcement had happened because it sort of it threw Ohio State's plan for the offensive line this this coming season a bit into disarray, and they're still trying to figure that out. Um, I guess you could argue that they could have planned better for for the eventuality that Luke was going to leave, but no one thought it was going to be after last year. But I I think he had a pretty solid season, and he was a two year starter, fairly productive, fairly consistent. And then I think had had what what I I would agree with, but he certainly thought was a really good game against Georgia. And I think he just thought to himself, "Well, I just played." maybe one of my better games in my college career against the best defense I'm, I'm going to see playing at this level. Let's kind of strike while the iron's hot and make the jump to the NFL. And there was probably a little bit of a misread on the, on the center class at that point when he goes, I think he was the seventh of eight centers or seventh of nine centers drafted this year. So in, yeah. in hindsight, maybe it wasn't the the best decision, but um, I don't know. I don't, I don't ever say like this guy made the wrong choice. Like maybe Luke just wanted to go play in the NFL and he was done with college and that that's fine too. But um, certainly it was, it was unexpected. Like we were, we, we try to game these things out as we get closer and closer to the end of the year, like who's going to leave, who's coming back. And it never really crossed my mind that Luke would leave until he did. 
Yeah, there's certainly limitations on draft picks if a guy's a center-only type. And I wasn't surprised he fell. I thought the tape is good, the value is good, but I wasn't I wasn't surprised he fell. And I was interested to see if they thought he's going to leave. So good stuff on that. Last one's Ronnie Hickman. Uh, interesting guy, right? He redshirts in 19. Mm-hmm. He plays, essentially starts two seasons. And he goes from a – I think you would agree with me here. He goes from a completely different role in 21 to 22 when, when Knowles arrives. So I guess I, – I at least know the Browns were interested around 190. They didn't take him at 190, and they didn't take anybody at 229, even though they were interested. So there was no surprise he ends up getting a UDFA deal and a decent amount of money to come to Cleveland on a UDFA deal. So – Talk a little bit about his journey, if you recall some of the recruiting stuff, the type of person he is, if you can, and then uh, we'll cover a little bit of why he fell out of the draft in a second. Yeah, another um, fairly high, highly rated recruit from New Jersey that Ohio State got, and I think he was in the 2019 class, the same class as Dewan Jones. Um, he was he was a big get for them at the time. They had they had a nice thing going Ohio State for a while with with getting like the the top two or three guys or being in on the top two or three guys in New Jersey, um, <clears throat> excuse me for a couple cycles. And, and Ronnie was one of those guys, um, like a good academic guy. I think I think he was like, he was like looking at like Notre Dame, I think was maybe his other, his other choice. He came out of a, of a private school, private Catholic school in, um, in New Jersey. So he's a, a sharp kid. Um, clearly had a pretty good head on his shoulders. I think when he, when he got here, he, he put in, he put in work that that people took notice of that got him on the field. I think fairly early is more of like a special teams guy, um, but you could see it coming that he was going to be a starter for the defense in relatively short order, and he became that in twenty twenty one. And frankly, he was the twenty twenty one defense was not very good. In fact, it was it was quite bad at points. But um, he was fairly solid that year. Like he was a hundred tackle guy. He was he was sort of the the one part of that defense that was maybe it's it's only redeeming quality for for a long long stretch of, of that season but um i don't i don't know why and, and maybe it's it's the defense changed for sure and he's, as you alluded to his role sort of changed a little bit um he didn't quite match it last year and i know the and he declared for the draft like before the michigan game um which i think rubbed ohio state fans the wrong way um because yeah. he didn't play particularly well at the end of the year and Ohio State ended up losing that game so it it sort of fizzled for him at the end of his career but um, his first season as a starter in 2021 was was I thought very good and the first half of last year I thought was pretty solid too so he ends up falling there's some sort of right hip issue it seems do you do you know more about that why he wasn't able to test no we tried to figure out why he wasn't testing and, and i guess that's the nature of this draft like if you're hurt you don't want to tell anybody um so that would make sense like he didn't do anything um didn't do combine didn't do pro day was just kind of standing around um and i just i don't i think that combined with what i'd imagine is is film at the end of the 2022 season yeah. that nfl teams weren't particularly enamored with um leads you to the to, to the result of him not getting drafted but um I'd imagine he was a fairly hot commodity as an undrafted free agent because he does have upside and there is production on that college tape if you if you dig and, and, and try to look for it. So um I don't I don't think like he he like washed out or anything like that. I still think he's he's got pretty decent upside and, and is and is worth a, a flyer, certainly as an undrafted free agent. But he just he needs to find whatever it was that he had going for him two years ago because he just wasn't the same player last year. Yeah, his niche to me smells like it's closer to the football. So, you know, I yeah. think as close as you can get him to the line of scrimmage, the better. And and maybe he has to 
latch on as a special teams guy. That's probably where he's going to find his way onto a 53 as a special teams ace. And then somebody who can be a sub package safety, but there is, like you said, there's experience in big games and big moments. And he is a good athlete, even though he didn't test, which it did certainly hurt him that he didn't test. He's a good enough athlete to get on an, an NFL roster. So we'll hope that happens in Cleveland real quick before we go, Bill. It seems like I saw Dane Brugler's mock. There's a lot of guys in this upcoming <laughs> uh, class that are, that are, uh, a potential potential guy so is the it's it's obviously going to be a interesting season I, I say this because i know large portion of my browns listeners are big ohio state folks as well it all hinges on quarterback play it smells like but it should be a pretty talented roster right so i'm, I'm asking you to give us like a 60 second what to look for this year yeah i mean they're they're loaded at receiver as as they typically are under ryan day i think marvin harrison jr is the best returning player in college football maybe outside of kayla williams i suppose if he's the returning heisman winner but um marvin has a tremendous chance to be the first non-quarterback taken in next year's draft i think Emeka abuka is right there with them in terms of receivers in college football um they're loaded at running back uh they have a lot back on defense they have to get better than they were last year but from a personnel standpoint especially on the defensive line with guys like jt tuimolo and, and michael hall um, those are guys that have, I think, pretty high NFL ceilings when, when the time comes for them to come out. Um, it's quarterback and offensive line, I think. they got to figure out right tackle in particular. They're trying to address that via the transfer portal with a kid they just brought in from San Diego State. Um, I think that could help settle things down a little bit. And then Ryan Day has to figure out who he wants to, to be the trigger man for that offense. Um, I think coming out of spring, it, it seems like Kyle McCord has a little bit of an upper hand there, but... Part of that is because Devin Brown broke his finger, broke a finger on his throwing hand right before the spring game. And and I think Ryan Day has seemed eager to leave the door open for Devin Brown to still be in the fight um, come camp. And then we'll see, I'd imagine probably three weeks or so into August, we'll have a clearer picture on who the starting quarterback is. But um, Ryan Day has been good about getting whoever that new quarterback is ready to go um, from the jump. So I don't I don't worry too much about it, but it is a lingering question for them. I'm sure there's about 75,000 words and 75 podcasts on that exact position looming in your future. So yeah, yeah. It gives us something to talk about for sure. (laughs) Hey, who's a guy in 24 that maybe is not mainstream. So somebody off the beaten path, you know, there's a lot of these guys pretty well known coming back. Is there a guy you look at on the roster that is going to shoot up and be having this discussion about somebody like that from Ohio state next year? Uh, He, I mean, he's probably fairly well known among Ohio State fans. Um, but Sonny Styles is—he's uh, a—he's a unicorn. He's—he's he's six. Boy. Yes, yeah, Pickerington kid, uh, son of of Lorenzo Styles, former Buckeye. Uh, six foot. I, I want to say he's at least six four. He might be closer to six five. Yeah. Two hundred and twenty pounds. Runs incredibly well. Rangy, tough, strong. They can play at all three levels of the defense. Um, I have no idea how they're going to use him this year, other than to say that I think they're going to find a way to use him. And he is not he's not draft eligible until 2025. Um, and I don't he's a younger guy. He early enrolled. He, he skipped his senior year of high school to come to Ohio State early last year. So he'd be like 20 years old, I think, when he came out, if he came out after three years at Ohio State. So so who knows? That that's a year or two off at least for, for Sonny to jump to the NFL. But in terms of like difference makers that haven't had a chance to shine just yet, I think he's near the top of that list. Real freak of nature coming out of Pickerington central, the field football powerhouse over there. Um, brother transferred in, right? I think I saw that. Yeah. Lorenzo, he's coming in. Uh, he was a two year player at Notre Dame as a receiver. 
and now he's coming to Ohio State to play defensive back, which is hmm. the position that Ohio State kind of always saw him as coming out of high school. It's the reason I think he went to Notre Dame. Ohio State didn't love him as a receiver. Um, they, If he wanted to play defensive back, I think they would have taken him. Um, but he went to Notre Dame and decided to make that change. Um, he started playing defensive back for Notre Dame this spring um, and then transferred like right before their spring game. So we didn't actually get to see any of it, which is a little bit disappointing. But he is coming to Ohio State to give defensive back a try. All right. Well, we hear about both. It'd be fun if both of those guys find their way into yeah. the secondary this year. So uh, as far as Ohio State coverage and, and insight goes, it's unparalleled with Bill. So we appreciate your time, sir, very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. That's a wrap for the first portion of this entire process, which, again, is a lengthy one. But I think well worth it to learn all about these Browns prospects. So we will do some different stuff the rest of the week and then come back likely with a Tuesday podcast to finish up the introductory series. Like I said, Isaiah McGuire, uh, we have that one set up. We have Cameron Mitchell already done, Dorian Thompson-Robinson already done, and then the two UDFAs that I wanted to hit on, Lonnie Phelps. I think we got a lead on that one and then should be able to hit uh, Mahmoud B. Abate as well. Uh, And then we'll see if there's any more that we can get between now and then to try to enlighten you on any more of the UDFA guys. So overall, I think this one went really well. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Let me know. Always appreciate those reviews, both whatever amount of stars you want to give and any feedback always welcome to improving the podcast. You guys know, I appreciate that whether you use Spotify or Apple or however you go about it. DMS are always open. So like I said, thanks for being here guys. Hopefully you enjoyed part one. We'll check in with part two next week. Have a fantastic Thursday. Go Browns. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.